There are three stages in our encounter with God that God must take us through in order to bring us into salvation. And these stages reveal to us the very way that Jesus Christ came to us. Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission, Church Partnership Evangelism, and its associate fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the director of CPE, and I'm your Bible teacher. CPE has missionaries in South America, Europe, and Asia. If you wish to learn more about our work, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 and 4. Before taking on human nature, our Savior was the pre-existent, eternal God the Son. And then He came to us in human flesh in order to enter into our weakness and to bear our sins. The final stage of His revelation to us we'll speak of now, and then we'll see how we all must walk these stages if we are to embrace by faith the gospel of God. The next stage is the stage of the God-man's exaltation, who is appointed now or declared to be the Son of God. We've already said that He is the Son of God. We begin with the Son of God, but now an appointment is made before the minds of His disciples and for all to see that He is the Son of God, the God-man, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And here Paul is referencing not only Christ's resurrection, but his ascension into heaven and his place as king and judge over all the earth. And Christ, as we've noted, has eternally been the Son of God. But here Paul is simply stating the historical fact that in his resurrection, the Holy Spirit has powerfully removed the veil that sealed off his deity from the eyes of those who witnessed him and saw him. And in his resurrection, he is now recognized as the exalted divine son of God who had come in human flesh. It's tempting at times for us to simply limit ourselves to thinking of the Lord Jesus as if he still is around as the one who walked upon the earth with his disciples. We place him in the clothes that he wore in Galilee. We put sandals upon his feet. We have him walk alongside of us as he expressed himself in his humiliation and humility. We actually can find comfort in thinking of him this way, but you'll recall how it is that John will see Jesus in the vision he had in the book of Revelation. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation. John was close to the Lord Jesus. They were cousins. According to the flesh, they were cousins. John, you might be reminded that the Last Supper tells us that he was seated nearest to Jesus during the Last Supper and even rested his head against him during that time. But now in the book of Revelation, John has a vision of the exalted Lord. Let me read to you verses 10 through 18. John writes this. It's a totally different vision than he had before. This is not Christ in his humiliation. This is how he stands now that he's risen again from the dead. The glorified, exalted Christ glorified in his divinity, but also now glorified in the humanity that he took upon himself. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. 
His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined or burning in the furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to Hades and death. I have the keys to hell and death. This is Christ in his exaltation. Before one of his disciples. He's the one we come before when we pray and when we worship. He's the one who's conquered on behalf. He's the one who applies to us all the potency and power of our salvation when we believe and trust in him. And now it's this one that the gospel is all about. This one who was the preexistent eternal God. This one who came and took on flesh and experienced our sin. This one who has conquered our sin and risen and will one day come to judge the earth in majesty and power and is now adored by the heavenly angels. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what Paul will turn to speak of it. He says it's the gospel of God, but after this, he'll call it the gospel of Jesus Christ is his good news. And in coming to the gospel, in coming to the gospel, in a sense, you have to come to him through these stages as the Christ or as the Son, as Jesus, the one who's come, as our Lord. Let's look at this very quickly, these stages of coming to him, and this will be, in a sense, our application. You'll need to come before God, the holy and triune God of all creation, the God who made you and made you for himself, the God whose glory you have fallen short of because of your sin, the God who will bring you into account who is holy and just in all his ways and must address your sins, but God who loves you still and desires to bring you back into himself. It's before this God that you have to see your own failing and your own sin and your own need to come into the gospel. You have to come before this eternal God. Next, you'll need to come before God as he draws near to you as the Savior, as Jesus the Christ as the God who took into himself your humanity, as the one who can sympathize with you in all your trials and temptations, as the one who knows your sorrows and your weaknesses, as the one who will love you so much that he'll step into your sins and suffer the justice and punishment that they deserve in your place. The substitutionary sacrifice is illustrated in a way throughout human history. We see examples of individuals who bring forward in their own life a stunning example of this kind of substitution where they die for another and they sacrifice their love for another. Jesus said, greater love has no man that delays down his life for his friend. Paul reminds us that Christ commends his love for us and that while we were yet enemies, he died for us. But that substitution, that sacrifice is illustrated in different occasions. I was a number of years ago in Auschwitz and I saw the cell where Father Maximilian Kolb and 10 others were starved to death and died. A man had escaped the concentration camp. 
the Nazi commander wanted to make a lesson to everyone else of what would take place if one man escaped and so that they wouldn't let anybody do that again. And so he determined that there would be 10 prisoners that would be taken among those in the camp and that they would be put in a dungeon or in a, a cell in the basement of the facility that they were at and they'd be starved to death. And so 10 men were randomly picked and one of the men cried out, my wife and my children. And so Kolb stepped forward and asked to take his place. And he did. And he died for that man. As a result, Frank Gajanesic survived and returned to his wife. And it's a wonderful illustration of vicarious sacrifice for another. It's a wonderful illustration of the vicarious sacrifice that Christ made when he died in our place for our sins. But the illustration only goes so far. As an act of love and sacrifice, it's a beautiful example. But it's no illustration of righteousness and justice. What happened to Kolb and the nine others was unjust and it was evil. If God had determined that the only way that you could go free from your sins was to set his just judgment down upon a sinless, innocent human being in your place, God would be as unjust as that Nazi camp commander. No. Your sins in this case were serious and required the punishment from God to be just. But for the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins to not only be an act of love, but an act of justice and righteousness, something more had to take place. God himself must become a man. God himself must take in the nature of that man the pursuit of living a sinless and holy life. God himself must then, as a man in that human nature, take upon himself the punishment that rightly should have come upon us. That is love, and that is righteous altogether. And it is the only way God could have redeemed us from our sins. And that's what God did in Jesus Christ. That's what happened in that moment. And this is the gospel we must come to. That's the end of stage two. But he conquers. He bears our sins. He rises victorious. He absorbs in himself the hell we deserve and, and puts the flame out. And rises to save and redeem all those who believe and trust in him. And now when you meet him, you meet him as the conquering, risen, all-powerful Lord who has conquered and ascended into his might of eternal glory. And there, stage three, you bow at his feet and you worship and you glorify him and you honor him who so condescended in order to rise on your behalf. And you see that when he rose, he did not discard his humanity. This is one of the great mysteries. Christ, who is eternally God by nature, one with God throughout all eternity, took into himself human nature, died in that human nature, rose again, glorified in that human nature, and he'll never take it off. And in that moment, he gave an expression of what he plans for you and I. He glorified our future and said, this is what I'll make of you. This is what I'll bring you into. If you'll trust me and you'll believe in me, not only forgive you of your sins, I'll not only make a way for you to be reconciled to me, but you will be united with me, 
co-heirs with me, glorified with me. We'll be like him when he comes because we'll see him as he is. By so doing, Christ lives out forever the promise of the glory which he will one day bring all who believe in him into. Our bodies will be transformed into glory like unto his body. And we shall be with him and in him forever and ever. Paul ends, our Lord, our Lord, forever with our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Paul is going to write about. That's the gospel Paul is going to begin to explain and magnify. That's the gospel that should capture our heart. That's the gospel that should hold us bound in worship of him. That's the gospel that should change the way we approach our world. Christ came into history to bring this story to bear. We should live out our history, the desire to bring that story to bear to others. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. My Jesus, what a wonder you are. What an unfathomable mystery. What condescension beyond all knowing. What nearness to me, not simply to touch and draw near in some way, but to enter into my experience. To take into yourself myself. Take into yourself my sin there. They're covered in your righteousness. They'll bear its punishment. There, bring to me your glory. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of church partnership, evangelism, and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. We are at work to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, and we need your prayers and your support. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.